Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We have five big topics to talk about today. First, we're going to do some fun with small sample sizes, because what's the point of April baseball if you can't look at ludicrously small sample sizes and attribute meaning to them? We're going to talk about the best reliever that you need to know about the emerging DJ LeMahieu experience, which is fascinating in so many ways, uh, the red-hot Atlanta Braves offense, whether you should buy it or not, and we're going to talk about the 2018 rollout of sprint speed leaderboards and some slight changes to the metric. But first, some small sample sizes, and as you know from listening to the show, we, we each have our guys that we like, right? Names like Luis Perdomo and Franchi Cordero. One of Matt's guys for this year has very much been Brandon Nimmo. Matt, why are you so excited about Brandon Nimmo? I was interested in Nimmo last year just because you know he was a, a first-round pick who kind of took a long time to develop, but he came from Wyoming. And the, the, even when he was drafted, the idea was, well, he played, you know, he barely played, so he's going to take a long time. And sure enough, it took a long time. Um, and his one skill in the minors was drawing walks. Um, but I've always been kind of skeptical of guys whose main skill in the minors is drawing walks. I've always, I was scared off many years ago by Jeremy Romita. Um, <laughs> that's always the guy that I use as like the, uh, the red flag. When, when your standout skill is drawing walks, you got to bring a little more to the table. So to me, that was like kind of the downside for Nimmo was Jeremy Romita. But you started to see the power develop as the years went on a little bit. So I kind of wondered if um, there would be more there. And then I think his, when he first came up in 2016, he hit a home run, which for a while was the longest home run ever tracked by a Met, by StatCast. It was like 450 feet or something. And it sort of showed, okay, well, there's actually some real thunder in the bat, you know, as we've talked about before. Like, the ability to hit the ball 450 feet is a skill that a lot of people just can't do. And it's starting to look like maybe Brandon Nimmo has some some pop. So he's still drawing walks. Um, right now, granted, small sample size because he actually got sent down for a few days. Uh, minimum 10 batted ball events. He's fourth in um, barrel rate uh, relative to plate appearances at 15.4%. Um, and he's first uh, in expect- expected weight on base uh, of the 317 batters with 30 at-bats at 612. So, of course, he's not going to be at 612 expected weight on base it's not possible. all year. <laughs> um, but he's really interesting because... He's always had the batting eye, and he's still show, he's still being discerning, and he's actually starting to drive the ball. I remember in the offseason, I said I wouldn't trade Nimmo straight up for Josh Harrison when that was floated, and Mets fans were not pleased with that. And I think they've probably changed their tune on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I asked I asked uh, Anthony DiComo, uh, our Mets beat reporter, over the offseason. It's like, hey, you know, what is the sense on Nimmo in the organization? What do you think about him? He basically said that, like, there might be a little – he had a little skepticism because he thought that, like, maybe teams would figure out that he was just going to take pitches and finally start to challenge him. Be like, well, if this all this guy's going to do is take – because last year his, like, chase rate was basically – in Joey Votto territory. Granted, again, he was like 100 at bats, but it was like, he was like, I think once teams figure him out, they're going to challenge him and then we'll see what he's made of. Thus far, he looks like he might be a player. So your first small sample size stat is Brandon Nimmo crushing baseballs. I like that. Mine is 64.7%. That is Adam Adovino's strikeout rate. He has faced 34 hitters. He has struck out 22 of them. That is a 22 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio, uh, which is absurd. I, I tweeted about this earlier today and someone replied to me, that the Rockies spent like a billion dollars on relievers this offseason, and their best reliever is a guy who wasn't on the wild card roster last year, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, but he was—he was—he was one of your guys a couple of years. I mean, he yes. was actually once a guest on the Statcast yes, podcast, he was. if I'm not mistaken. He was, and he got injured, right? And so that's what happens. Um, but he has been unbelievable this year. If you look at his slider, it's like it's like a frisbee. Uh, and if you you know you can look at the movement numbers, and we're, we've been working on different ways to express movement numbers. Uh, traditionally, it's movement against the. Uh, theoretical spinless ball which literally nobody understands 
So what we are going to report it as is a movement in real inches with gravity and then pinned against uh, pitches from the same release point and a similar velocity. And if you look at horizontal movement on sliders, Adam Adovino is third best in baseball uh, compared to the release point and velocity of, he, of where he throws his slider. He's getting 10 inches of movement on his slider. Brad Hand is getting 11 inches of movement. And Chaz Rowe, 15 inches of movement, and if you don't know Chazaro, I implore you to go look at his slider. It's the silliest thing in the world. Uh, last night, I was watching the Rockies game, and they put up this graphic about Adovino, so this doesn't include his outing last night, and these numbers were ridiculously silly, if you want small sample. ERA plus of 487, his K9 was 18.6, now it's over 20, I think. His FIP was negative 0.15, uh, small sample, yes, but as you said, Adam Adovino has had a history of success, and now he's healthy. He's throwing this ridiculous slider. He's like a must-watch pitcher for me right now. Brooklyn's own Adam Adovino. Uh, speaking of baseball players from the Northeast, uh, my number two small sample size guy is Rick Porcello, who is right now number one uh, amongst pitchers in expected weight on base against at 190. That's minimum 50 batters faced, which is remarkable for him because he's just had the weirdest career, um, basically like going up and down from being like huge prospect to being kind of a disappointment to being, well, maybe he's going to be like a decent, like number four starter to winning the Cy Young award to being terrible again last year to thus far in uh, only a handful of starts being really good thus far this year. Um, right now, thus is a uh, 23% K rate career high, only walking 1.3% of batters. So that's a pretty good recipe. Um, I'm not sure I really believe in him. I've never really been that big of a Rick Porcel guy. That's why when I looked at the leaderboard and saw him at number one, it's like, huh, that is interesting. And maybe like a reason, you know, the Red Sox, a lot of people are giving, giving, being given credit for the Red Sox success. And uh, Parcell's got to be a part of that. So you have him as uh, number one expected weighted on base. And expected weighted on base is our favorite metric. Uh, it combines strikeouts and walks and quality of contact. That's our favorite StatCast metric, StatCast powered by Amazon Web Services. I did the same thing as you, but slightly differently. I looked at uh, expected weighted on base as well. But instead of a minimum of 50 batters faced, I dropped it to a minimum of 30. And there I get a different name. I get Craig Stammen. And this is obviously small sample size theater. Uh, he has a 136 expected weighted on base. That is the best in baseball. And if you look at his numbers, 10 strikeouts and one walk in 10 innings, that's, that's pretty good. But in the context of 2018 baseball, that's not stellar. What it is, is it's about his contact. 73% ground balls. He's allowed 22 balls in play. Only four of them have been hard hit. And three of the four were infield grounders. So he is not really allowing hard contact. Everything he is allowing is on the ground. And I remember him from being this kind of mediocre fifth starter type for Washington a bunch of years ago. And now he's like resurfaced with San Diego as kind of a useful reliever again. Yeah, I have a, a sort of random Greg, Craig Stammen story, which I will share now, uh, which is that when I used to work at Baseball America, one of my first assignments my first year in 2005 was to rank the top 20 prospects in the New York Penn League. Um, as it turned out, it was a it was a pretty good league that year. There were a lot of college players who went through, so it was pretty easy to get like you know, it was like Jacoby Ellsbury, Jed Lowry, um, Wade Davis was in the league, Jake McGee. Um, it was a, it was a really interesting league. I think if I recall correctly, the number one prospect I ranked was uh, Nolan Reimold. Um, <laughs> uh, some other names, if I, I'm trying to bring back from that list, uh, Rodhames Lees, um, and uh, Brett Gardner. Bobby Parnell, and there's one other guy who became like kind of a guy from that league that year. Oh, Eduardo Nunez, who was 17 in the league. Um, but what was interesting was Craig Stammen was in the league, and I remember he didn't make the top 20. But I remember it was like this was a first one of my first experiences sort of like trying to deal with like scouting and like you know coach evaluations and talking to a lot of managers in the league and coaches in the league. And a lot of people were like, oh, like Stammen's 
is is one of the best prospects in the league. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like this guy was like a 12th round pick from the University of Dayton. He had a four ERA, you know, 5.6 strikeouts per nine. But all the everyone was like, no, this guy, he's got a major league curveball. This guy has got a major league pitch. And it was like a really good lesson in sort of like recognizing like, hey, there is a lot of value in scouting and people who know the game. I was this like cocky kid who read Moneyball and thought that he knew that he could like scout a kid off a, off a spreadsheet. And I was like, oh, okay, like now I, I get it. And it turned out he was a big leaguer. He hasn't been like a star. But the fact that a 12th round pick at the University of Dayton has had a, you know, cromulent uh, major league career and is now a dominant dominant uh, reliever or at least having a dominant spells reliever. Um, so it kind of shows a lot. And part of a surprisingly interesting San Diego bullpen with uh, Jordan Lyles' new power change up and Brad Hand uh, and Kirby Yates and Craig Stammen. Uh, your final small sample size that. Well, stat. my last guy is, is DJ LeMahieu. Well, let's get, we'll get back to him uh, in a deeper look at the uh, – uh, DJ LeMahieu experience, which sounds like a prog rock band. Uh, <laughs> and let's, let's let's go to your next uh, small sample size all star. Uh, have you noticed the Cleveland bats have been generally terrible this year, uh, just in terms of outcomes, right? And there's a lot of talent in that lineup. Obviously, I think everybody picked them to win the Central. Uh, they are underperforming their expected weighted on base by 81 points. They have a 347 expected weighted on base. They have a 266 actual weighted on base. The gap of 81 points, the most in Major League Baseball. Part of that is just uh, terrible luck. They have a 234 team batting average on balls in play. League average is 290. I assume part of it is also just the garbage weather that we've seen in the middle of the country. Uh, it's really hard to hit when it's 12 degrees and snowing. And if you look uh, at everybody in baseball, all the hitters who have had at least 30 plate appearances, there's 253 guys, two members of the Cleveland baseball team are in the bottom six of the underperforming list. Francisco Lindor has a 438 expected weighted on base and a 296 outcome. And Yonder Alonso, who we talked about last week uh, in regards to Carlos Santana, is now uh, second to last. I think Santana beat him. 442 expected weighted on base, 276 actual. These are enormous gaps. Yeah, when I was looking at that um, that leaderboard that where Brandon Nimmo is uh, high up on the uh, uh, barrel rate, uh, I saw Yonder Alonso pop up. And I got to say, I was really surprised because... I was definitely Alonzo skeptic. Yeah, he was like a kind of a stat cast star last year, raised his lunch angle, but then he was terrible after his midseason trade to Seattle. And like, yeah, the Mariners got him on what, two for 20? It was, I mean, not Mariners, the Indians signed him two for 20. Not a huge deal. I was kind of like, this isn't, I didn't think it was going to go well. I was not buying Yonder Alonzo as like having turned his career around. But so far, it looks like he's been a good fit and the results will come. He has a, 13.2% uh, uh, barrel percentage uh, per, per plate appearance. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. But even last year in his second half when he kind of fell off, his second half, while inferior to his first half, was still better than like the rest of his career. This is true. So I, he had that going for him. Uh, we need to talk about Josh Hader. Now, I think if you're in the know, you've kind of known that Josh Hader was a really interesting pitcher. But it just feels like everybody on earth noticed what he did on Saturday against the Mets. He faced six hitters uh, against the Mets. Juan Lagares, strikeout. Wilmer Flores, strikeout. Michael Conforto, strikeout. Estrubal Cabrera, strikeout. Yohannes Cespedes, strikeout. Jay Bruce, fly ball to center field. Uh, That's he, good. That's very good. He has identical to Adam Adovino, 22 strikeouts, 34 batters faced, 64.7% strikeout rate. That's absurd. It's obviously a small sample size, but it's not out of nowhere either. Uh, he has actually been unbelievably dominant in his short major league career. Last year, he got into 35 games as a reliever. He had a 208 ERA. We, we started to see signs of this ridiculous strikeout stuff. And again, small sample sizes. Since 2008, since pitch tracking came online, there have been just over 1,200 pitchers who have thrown at least 50 innings. The biggest strikeout rates in terms of strikeout percentage, uh, strikeouts per batter's faced, 
Craig Kimbrell is number one at 42%. Araldus Chapman is number two at 41.5%. Josh Hader is number three ahead of Kenley Jansen and Dallin Batances. And my my favorite like measurement of pure dominance is not just strikeout percentage because that can be you know throwing a slider in the dirt and someone goes after it, which is super useful. But I want dominance. I want to know the lowest amount of contact in the strike zone. And if you look at the same 1,202 pitchers, Josh Hader is number one in that time, 67% in zone contact. Chapman, Jansen, Kimbrell, and Carl Edwards are after that. Uh, again, he's only thrown you know 50-something innings, not the 400-something innings these guys have thrown. So that is to be taken into account. But that is monstrous. I mean, this is, this guy is he's becoming a thing, right? Yeah, and when you watch him pitch, you, you you totally can see it. He's a lefty who has this like like slinging like low arm angle comes from way you know way like basically in like the first base dugout. Um, he's throwing ninety five almost exclusively fastball sliders, and just it's it's filthy. Like you you watch him like, well, how does anyone hit this guy? And what's funny is if you look back at his minor league career, uh, he was a starter, right? In tw- in twenty sixteen, he started fourteen games. Had a 5.22 ERA in AAA last year. He started 12 more games. Had a 5.37 ERA. That's terrible. Now, to be fair, he was pitching in Colorado Springs, which is not exactly a pitcher-friendly uh, place to be. But he was a starting pitcher. He goes into relief, and things changed for him. And now he's basically like I don't know a, a Chris Sale out of the bullpen or something like that's what he looks like, right? The way he kind of throws from the left side a little low like that. And I had totally forgotten until you mentioned it to me before the show that he was originally drafted by the Orioles. Yes, it's drafted by the Orioles, 12, 19th round in two thousand twelve. A year later, at the trade deadline, traded with L.J. Hose to the Astros for Bud Norris. And he was a local Maryland kid, too. So I remember this being a thing. He didn't really want to be traded. So now he goes to Houston. And then, of course, he was part of that crazy trade, which we talk about like on every other episode of the show. (laughs) He was traded by the Astros with Adrian Hauser, Brett Phillips, and Domingo Santana. To the Brewers for Mike Fears and Carlos Gomez and Cash. It just keeps coming up. That but it also, it also, remember, it goes back to Carlos Gomez was almost traded to the Mets that week for Zach Wheeler and Wilmer Flores. <laughs> but Wilmer Flores is crying on the field. And then <laughs> the Mets nixed the deal. How much has baseball history changed by that trade getting nixed? Because then Wilmer Flores is part of the Mets team that goes to the World Series and loses. But then the trade happens and the Astros win the World Series two years later. Like, it's crazy. That week, like, those two interactions changed so much of baseball history. I, I might be having my time frame wrong here, but... Since the Mets didn't end up getting Gomez, didn't they like immediately go out and get Cespedes right yes, afterwards? Exactly. So they Michael mean... Fulmer ends up in Detroit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that like came out of that. Um, but I was really interested in Hater because obviously, you know, he's just dominating guys, blowing guys away. But what's interesting is, you know, he's got nice velocity. His average right now is 93.3, but he's not throwing 100. Like he is not Araldis Chapman, and he doesn't have high spin either. He's actually got kind of below average spin, which I found really interesting. And what I think this is what's happening here is uh, because of his weird release point like i said he's kind of chris sale on the side here i think it's deception and i also think that from that angle the ball is moving in a way the hitters don't expect so like i was talking about before if you look at movement uh as as compared to similar release points and similar velocity right because if we're going to include gravity gravity requires time we got to include velocity here so if you look at all the pitchers last year who threw at least 304 seam fastballs clayton kershaw actually had the highest vertical break above average right let's say the most rise so five inches above average compared to the guys throwing a similar velocity from a similar release point as he did number two would be josh fields number three josh Hader. Just a slight tick behind Clayton Kershaw. And then also, I like doing it this way because Marco Estrada and Sean Doolittle also show up on this list, which this is great because Marco Estrada does not throw as hard, but he gets a lot of rise. So throwing from that angle and the ball, you know, it kind of rises a little bit, but just in comparison to everybody else from that angle at that velocity, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because he's throwing strikes and nobody's touched. 
Can I hit you with a, a random thought experiment? Yes. That Astros trade. Yes. The hater trade. Phillips trade. You know, all that, right? If you're the Astros, when you rem- when you're reminded that Mike Mike is it fears or fires? Uh, uh, I think I think it's fires. That Mike Fires actually threw the most innings of yes. anyone on their World Championship winning team. I don't think he pitched in the postseason. Did he pitch in the postseason? No, but he had like a five twenty ERA. <laughs> um, I guess it's sort of. I forgot he had five twenty. I was gonna say. Where are you do going you, with do this? you still make the trade? Do you still make the trade? If, if you go back in time and undo no. this trade, you do it. Oh, of course you undo it because Gomez wasn't that good for them. Yes, but. You also run the risk of maybe not winning the World Series. I, I understand. Like, there's a whole you know butterfly effect here that you remove Mike Fires and then Dallas Keuchel throws ten more innings and one of those innings he blows out his arm or whatever. I get that. Uh, I refuse to believe that Mike Fires is the difference between winning the World Series and not last year. Because as you said, like they won 104 games. They don't need him to do that, and he didn't do anything in the postseason. So you absolutely undo that trade because imagine now you have. Uh, Domingo Santana as like a fourth outfielder and Josh Hader in the bullpen? Yes, 100%. I, I, I undo that. But trade. possibly without a World Series wearing. Um, just saying. Lots of things are possible, including DJ LeMayhew becoming a different hitter. Uh, I think LeMayhew has been one of the more divisive hitters in baseball because always had high batting averages. I think he won the batting average title a couple years ago, and it's always been pretty clear that some of this is due to where he plays. I think people think of Coors Field as helping hitters in the sense that uh, it inflates home runs, which is only partially true. It's actually, uh, it inflates batting average on balls in play because the outfield is so large. So if you look at his career with Colorado, dating back to 2012, at home, he's hit 331, 390 on base, 448 slugging. Away, 274, a 324 on base, a 368 slugging. Clearly, some kind of Coors Field effect is helping DJ LeMahieu. So far in 2018, he has five home runs, None of them have been at home. And this is weird because Charlie Blackman's done the same thing. Seven home runs on the road. Now, I think part of the reason is uh, due to the weather and also due to Blackman's injury, he's barely played at home. He's played yeah. like three games at but home. The point is simply that so he's just raking that. on the road. And we know yeah. last year he had like the extreme. Yeah. He, the thing is, two, two years ago, his home road split was not that. Blackman. You're Blackman was yeah. not crazy. Right. Last year it was insane. He was and like, then this year... Last year he was like Babe Ruth at home, literally. <laughs> um but, you know, he actually now he's now he's going to be in Colorado basically for his career. So that's settled. Yeah. Um, but DJ LeMahieu so far, uh, this is a, another great example not to look at batting average, right? Home, he's hitting 296. Away, he's hitting 295. Identical. At home, he's got a 296 on base. Away, he's got a 415. At home, he's got a 370 slugging. At away, he's got a 705 slugging. All five of his home runs have come in 53 plate appearances on the road. And the uh, the production has been mostly earned. He's got a, a 408 expected weighted on base and a 399 actual. That lines up pretty well. And if you remember DJ LeMahieu from last year, he had uh, some of the weirdest shifts against him that we've ever seen because he pulled everything in the air. So uh, the Diamondbacks and some other teams would basically Padres. leave the yeah, Padres. They would leave left field completely unprotected, and they would have uh, their their center fielder move over and essentially play right center. The right fielder would be on the line, and the left fielder would play right up the middle. We saw this a bunch of times. It was so weird, uh, and we had a lot of fun with it. Now, his pull percentage is up. He's pulling the ball. Uh, every year for the last three years, 21% of his batted balls have been pulled. This year, that's 30. But here's what's interesting. Launch angle is not up. You kind of thought of him as being like a guy who's going to elevate. Uh, his launch angle is, you know, in the three to four degree range for each of the last three years. This year, it's actually down to 1.2 degrees. So basically, he's hitting the ball on the ground. Ground ball is steady. Uh, but what's happened is he's hit fewer line drives and more fly balls. And his hard hit rate is way up from 47% to 41% to 58%. So he's hitting the ball harder, and he's pulling it. Uh, and I think that's helpful, obviously, because if you can pull the ball that's right down the line, it's easier to get the home runs than if you're hitting it to center or right center. Are you buying the DJ LeMahieu experience? I mean, I think he's just a good, I think he's just like a, a good 
player. He sort of interests me because he's kind of, to me, he's a throwback. You know, there's like, this is like the slap hitting kind of second baseman. This is like, he's like straight out of the 1980s playbook. Um, and he's managed to like maintain a career. Like there aren't that many guys who basically like thrive by being a high batting average doubles guy. I mean, his career high in home runs is 11 and he's played his career in course field. I mean, Granny's probably going to top that this year because he already has five. Um, so, I'm buying in the sense that I think he's a good player and that I think that he can replicate, you know, his 2000. I think it's reasonable to think that he could replicate his 2016 performance when he went um, three. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he'll hit 348 again, but 348, 416, 495. He was a four win player. But I could see him, you know, being. And then last year he was 310, 374, 409. So somewhere in between there where like the batting average is in the, the 310, 320 range with a little more power. Like, like I, I, I buy that. This is an interesting stat. 299 hitters this year have seen at least 50 pitches within the strike zone, right? LeMahieu has one swing and miss. Uh, that is the, the best rate in baseball. Again, small sample size theater, but that is impressive. But that's always been kind of, kind of his thing. That's why I said he's kind of a throwback and why, why, he's, uh, why he's interesting to me. The other thing that's interesting to me about him is um, last year, or two years ago, right after the, um, the Cubs won the World Series, our own Andrew Simon did a piece looking at the history of, of Theo Epstein's trades in Chicago. Uh, yes. And basically was like, Theo Epstein has won every trade he's ever made as a Cubs GM or team president, whatever, except for his first one, which is when he traded DJ LeMahieu for Ian Stewart. And it was like Tyler Colvin was in that deal, I think. Or maybe that's what my – I, 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 I always confuse uh, Colvin and um, – I, I think they were both in that deal. And then somebody else also went uh, to, to... But yeah, power. basically, since then, he's essentially, or at least had a stretch of, like, until at least through 2016, where he won every trade. But DJ LeMahieu was a uh, a loss, so to yes. speak. And what's interesting is, so, okay, you've got this guy who is such an opposite field hitter that teams are doing ridiculous positioning was, Sorry, it was him. Casey Weathers. Another uh, okay. StatCast favorite, Casey Weathers and Ian Stewart. And uh, It was him and Tyler Colvin to the Rockies for Casey Weathers and Ian Stewart. I knew Tyler Colvin was in that deal. So you'd think, okay, uh, this guy's being positioned like that. His pull percentage is way up. He's adjusting, right? Uh, our own Thomas Harding, who is our Rockies.com beat writer, asked him about this. And DJ Omega's quote is, I've said it many times before. If I go up there looking to pull pitches, I become a worse hitter. That says to me he's not actually trying to do this. But if he is, at least if he, it's again, if you can keep him honest, if you can pull enough that they can't do the ridiculous shift, yeah. it helps him. And like that's a situation where you don't even, like, it's as long as you can hit enough line drives down to left field, you can keep right field open, and that's where your bread and butter is. He is going to be a fascinating free agent. Uh, I believe he's a free agent after this upcoming season. And, I, I, you know, one of the things that Blackman did with his contract was to avoid having to deal with the course field question. And I, I think for LeMahieu, that's going to be a huge issue for him coming up. I don't know that there's a ton of other second basemen on the market up against him this year, but it's going to be fascinating. He also, but then he also strikes me as a guy that maybe, based on what we've learned in the last couple of years, would likely get the qualifying offer and maybe would take it. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Perhaps so. Uh, moving on, the Atlanta Braves, their offense – is off to a pretty fantastic start. They are third in runs per game at 5.86, behind only the Angels and the Red Sox. So you could also say that they have the most runs per game in the National League. That's pretty good. And um, obviously, Freddie Freeman is a star. We've talked about Ozzie Albies on this show. There's a lot to like about the, the Braves' rebuild. And my question is, are you buying their hard start? Because what I found interesting is, yes, they're scoring a ton of runs. They have the second lowest average exit velocity in baseball, 86 miles an hour ahead of only the Reds and only by a tenth of a point, so essentially tied for 30th. They have the second lowest hard hit rate in baseball, only by a percentage point or two above the Marlins. They are at a 30.6% hard hit rate, 36.5 is the major league average. Why are they succeeding? They have the fourth highest 
batting average on balls in play in baseball at 310, and the highest average with runners in scoring position at 331. Major League average is 250. Uh, among the 192 qualified hitters, two Braves are in the top eight of batting average in balls in play. Ryan Flaherty with a 471, and Dansby Swanson with a 432. I don't think either one of those guys are going to hit the way they are so far this year. But as I said, Freddie Freeman is fantastic, and in their favor. Their 19.2% team strikeout rate is the fourth lowest in baseball. Their 10% team walk rate is the eighth highest. That's pretty good. And Freeman has earned pretty much all of his production. Are you are you buying the hot start? You know, before you started talking, I was sort of like, yeah, maybe I am. And now I'm like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm not. Uh, they're also, interestingly, they right now have the best run differential in the National League. Um, but uh, no, I think for the reasons you mentioned, I mean, I believe in, I think Ozzy Albies is fascinating. Uh, as a player, just because of like his size and the fact that he's got some power. Granted, like you know, he he had a home run in Wrigley the other day on that crazy weather day when the wind was like falling all over the place. It was like 94 miles an hour off the bat that went right down the line. I think he's a fascinating player who's going to be really valuable. It's unclear um, what the actual upside is. Um, you know, looking at like recent comps, I think it's like he's like Ruggie Odor, but with walks. Um, <laughs> That's a good player. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and Freeman's obviously great too. But yeah. Ryan Flaherty, no, I'm not buying. Preston Tucker, I'm buying maybe as like a, a good like a fourth a good, a good guy, extra yeah. guy. But yes, Swanson, I don't know. I don't really know what what the end. You know, he may end up being more you know Zach Cozart than Troy Tulowitzki when all is said and done, which is still kind of a decent player, but not the star you get with the number one or you're looking for with the number one overall pick. I, I do think uh, just looking at Freeman, like for a bunch of years, he was looked at as like a star, right? But Probably not even a top five first baseman. Not when like Votto and Goldschmidt and, and Miguel Cabrera and all these guys are out there. He was so good last year before he got hurt, and has been so good to start this year. He might be a top five hitter in baseball. And he is. He has really turned himself into like a legitimate superstar. And one of the few guys who actually walks more than he strikes out. So he's and he sprays yeah. the ball. So he's kind of shift proof. He's he's really good. I think he actually might. Be, so he's kind of underrated. Oh, he's absolutely underrated. He is for, for sure underrated. Uh, I'm just looking at the, the team stats right here, and you know OPS is what we have handy, so we'll go with it. Uh, of the, the eight regular starters for the Braves this year, six of them have uh, uh, OPSs of 900 or higher, and Marquecas is at 850. The one actual disappointment is Ender Inciarte is off to a terrible start, so he'll get better. But I'm really going to take the under on, yeah, Flaherty OPSing 922 and Preston Tucker at 916. And what everybody's waiting for is Ronald Acuna. He's off to a terrible start in AAA. Now, again, Eight games, 36 plate appearances. He's fantastic, but 152 batting average, 222 on base, 182 slugging. I'm pretty sure he's going to turn that around, but so far he has not. It's also certainly taking the heat off the Braves for sending him down. Uh, <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Because <laughs> um, you would expect, I mean, who knows what the, the factors are in play. Might be like, you know, morale's low because he got sent down. Maybe it's just a fluke. Who knows? But he'll be up sooner rather than later. Once he starts hitting, he'll be up. Yeah, I actually heard an interesting theory is that the AAA season starts like seven or eight days after the Major League season. So there is a much larger gap for him between the end of spring training and game starting. I don't know. It's eight games. Like He's still the number one prospect in baseball. He'll be up sooner than later. The final thing we're going to talk about is sprint speed. We've talked about sprint speed very often on the show, it's the way we directly measure speed. It's measured in feet per second in a runner's fastest one-second window. So we rolled this out, I guess, slightly over a year ago, and it was it was pretty cool. It was very satisfying. We had Buxton and Hamilton at the top, and we had a ton of catchers and DHs at the bottom. That's pretty much the way you want it to be. Uh, elite was about 30 feet per second. Average was 27. Really slow was down in like the 23, 24 feet per second range. 
when we rolled this out last year, uh, you know, obviously the hardest part about measuring this is when is a guy actually trying? Like, who cares what his speed is when he's just jogging out a fly ball? So what we did last year was we looked at any play where a runner or a hitter was going at least two bases, uh, excluding being on second base with an extra base hit because you can jog home on that. So we looked at uh, max effort plays. We took all of the uh, qualifiers. We took the average of the top 50% with a minimum of 10. That got us over 400 qualifiers. It was really good. It was very, very satisfying. Uh, but one thing we learned is that for some guys, it just took too long to get to the qualifying mark. We want to know what guys are doing. So we are going to include this year, which we'll roll out later this week, home to first times. Uh, and that's going to up the sample. It's going to get to meaningful numbers more quickly. Not all home to first times. Again, I don't care what you do when you're hitting a fly ball to the outfield. So it's just on uh, the the categories we've defined as topped or weekly hit, the kind of plays that you would actually be running hard on in the infield. Uh, again, we'll take the top percentage of that. And uh, that's like a little bit into the weeds. Like the formula is still the same. It's just more batted balls, and that's cool. But this sort of gets us a, another step closer to where we want to be in terms of uh, measuring speed. So we're looking at this in like a three-pronged approach. Sprint speed we already have. We've just made it a little better. That's essentially top speed. Uh, we also want to include what we're going to call probably burst or acceleration. And then also out-of-the-gate speed. And the preliminary stuff I've seen on this is actually very interesting. Like I kind of thought it would correlate all three of them really well, and it doesn't which is fun. That's interesting. Like I'm, I think that's a lot of fun to see that guys are different, differently talented at these things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like, you know, pitching, there are different pitches you can throw like speed. There are different like aspects. You know, you, you might be great, great at one, but not as great at another, but they all, it still makes you good in the, in the aggregate. Right. And for example, uh, looking at our 2018 leaderboards, which will come out uh, probably uh, in, in a few days. So uh, these numbers might slightly change, but number one is still going to be Byron Buxton, unsurprisingly, as it should always be. Tied for number two, I think these names are interesting, Trey Turner and Trevor Story. Now, Story, I, I find very fascinating because kind of looking at the out-of-the-gate speed, he's terrible at it. He, he is so slow getting going, but we're not measuring that here. We're measuring top speed, and he's actually really good at getting down the line to first base. I think it's interesting that Trey Turner is number two here because I remember last year, uh, before we rolled out sprint speed, before we really had a good speed measurement, when Turner came up, everybody's like, fastest man in baseball we got so many requests from people saying help us show how turner is the fastest man in baseball uh and we couldn't because he wasn't he and he's not like buxton is almost certainly the fastest man in baseball but even last year under the old formula he was elite he was 11th in sprint speed that is top four percent of qualifiers that is fantastic uh but factoring in the new formula and the new sample it doesn't really change most guys right their speed is their speed but for turner it jumped him all the way from 29.3 to 30.8. That is tied with Adam Engel for the largest jump of any regular 30, player. 30.4. 30. Uh, Buxton's 30.8. He's 30.4. No, I'm talking about last year. Okay. For last for last season, it will jump, because we're going to do this retroactively as well. Okay. So it's going to go oh, back. Oh, I see. Got you. He's last year. We got it. So I thought that was interesting, and uh, I wanted to know why. Like, for most guys, it's like a tenth of a point here or there, speed to speed. Why did Trey Turner jump by so much? And what we found was that if you just looked at sprint speed on home to first last year at the top, Trey Turner and Byron Muxon were tied. So I, I I think that's kind of fascinating is that just looking at home to first, Turner is actually much faster there than he is, like, you know, running for triples. Uh, this really gets into the fact that there are lots of different ways to be fast, different places to be fast. And uh, this, I think, will hopefully make people a little happier about Trey Turner. It's going to make him, he was already elite, right? Now he's going to be like top of the line elite. We will have some satisfied uh, some satisfied listeners and uh, fans out there now that they, with the the numbers will finally match their their eye test. And it is, it is, it is interesting to see the different components and it sort of shows, okay, Trey Turner clearly running in a straight line um, as fast as it gets, but maybe not quite as fast 
you know, running the bases. Exactly right. And that's the, the stuff. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but that's the direction we're headed in. So if you are one of our very uh, favored listeners who listens to this show, the second it comes out, the ch- Sprint Speed Leaderboards will not be updated for that yet, but that will come out later this week. We will, of course, tweet about it and write about it. We're very excited about that. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.